Welcome to the New Jersey Department of Education's Bureau of Bilingual ESL Education Podcast. I am Ken Bond, a state program coordinator and your host. In this podcast, I have bite-sized conversations about English language learner education with leaders in the field. During this episode, we will be discussing legal issues related to English language learners with David Nash. David currently serves as the director of the Legal One program, an innovative program that provides school law professional development for school leaders and other educators. David, thanks for being my guest on this episode. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. In New Jersey, we have had about 15,000 English language learners, also known as L's, added to our school enrollment. Many schools that have never worked with English language learners now have them enrolling in their schools. What are some themes and questions that you have been getting from districts around the law and English language learners that may be new to their district? So I definitely see a few common themes that come up in the questions. Um, Trying to to think through some of the larger categories, I, I sort of think of four E's. Um, We have questions about enrollment, questions about engagement and how much we engage kids and their parents, questions about education and the quality of the education that we're providing, and sort of the overarching issue of equity, and are we providing an equitable program for all kids. Um, Each one of those has all sorts of layers to it, um, and we want to make sure that all school districts understand their legal requirements when it comes to every aspect of what we're doing for English language learners. Yeah, hopefully we'll hit on all of those E's today in in our conversation because each one of those is important in its own right. Absolutely. ELLs are a protected class of students under state law, civil rights, court rulings, and the newly passed Every Student Succeeds Act, which is replacing No Child Left Behind, the education law that was passed under the Bush era. What are some common themes that you see between all of these laws? I think the biggest thing that we see in all these laws is the idea that we want all students to be fully engaged in the fabric of the entire school community. Um, English language learners should be an integral part of every part of, of our school program. And we really want to make sure that we think that through from the very beginning of the process. Um, so when we are looking to enroll students, uh, we want to make sure that there are no inappropriate barriers to enrollment. There's lots of misunderstanding, um, sometimes from parents and, and guardians, sometimes from school districts, about what sort of questions we can ask, what sort of information we can look for in the enrollment process. So one set of barriers we want to make sure we don't artificially erect are over access and making sure that kids are involved. The last thing we want to do is to raise any concern about uh, parents having to prove their citizenship status. And I'm sure we'll get into the constitutional issues that come up there. Uh, We certainly want to make sure that uh, all students are fully participating in extracurricular activities, in athletics, um, in our gifted and talented programs. And we want to make sure that we don't accidentally have disparities in discipline that are, are the result of some Uh, biases that may be built into our approach to to discipline issues. So it's important that we look at the full range of programs and services for all kids. And if we start to see disparities in opportunity, in outcome, 
in uh, participation and discipline, uh, they should raise red flags. And we see those common themes um, in New Jersey law, in federal law, in the court rulings that are out there. In 2015, the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights found that a New Jersey school district wasn't in compliance in terms of allowing ELLs to participate in a few programs, in special education services, as well as AP services and classes and gifted and talented courses. How can districts evaluate their entry criteria for these various services to ensure that they're not inhibiting or blocking participation for students who are in the process of learning English? It's a great question, um, and it really is something that takes a lot of attention. Um, so the U.S. Department of Education has put out a, a great resource document, um, an English language learner toolkit, um, that has a, a really good set of resources to make sure that we're not um, improperly denying special education services to English language learners. And it provides a good roadmap for uh, school districts to use to think through, are the issues that a student may be uh, manifesting a result of uh, language proficiency challenges or a learning disability? Uh, so I would encourage all school districts to look at that toolkit. It's a comprehensive document. It was adopted by the US DOE in 2016, and it really provides some great resources to look through a number of um, potential uh, learning disability challenges um, and English language proficiency challenges and helping school districts distinguish between the two. So I do think you want to look at best practices and look at the resources that are out there. I think you have to pay attention to your data. If you see, for example, a significant underrepresentation of English learner students in our gifted and talented programs, which we have seen nationwide and in many school districts, um, it should raise a red flag. It should tell us that perhaps we're not looking in a comprehensive way at students who have tremendous gifts. So for example, you might have a student who um, in their native country um, excelled in their academic program and you see that in the transcripts um, and the student is struggling um, here with academics. Um, it could be that what we're looking at is an English language proficiency issue, um, but we're not tapping into the tremendous talents that student has to offer. So I would encourage districts to look at the transcripts that kids are bringing with them. I would encourage them to look for um, ways that students can demonstrate their abilities that do not uh, depend upon their English language knowledge. Um, and if you have a student who is excelling in math or science, um, for many kids there's an excellent chance that they excel in a number uh, of academic areas. And we want to make sure that we identify that. So I think having broad criteria and having red flags that are raised when you have significant underrepresentation um, is a big issue. The other thing that I see with special education is that sometimes school districts create artificial barriers and they say that we're not going to consider you for special education until you have spent a certain amount of time in our school district so that we can provide language proficiency services to you. It is not an either or. There are times where there are enough indicators early on that a student may have a learning disability that we should not be waiting uh, weeks or months before we look to provide those services for students. 
Yeah, and those are all really great points. Districts really need to think about how they could potentially standardize some of those criteria so that district-wide L's are not just on a case-by-case basis being considered for gifted and talented when a teacher sees their transcript or something like that, but they're systematically looking district-wide at the talents of their English language learners through a standardized process. And also for some of the the possible learning disabilities. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's, um, we, we do see this trend. And again, I don't think it's an intentional trend. Um, sometimes it's difficult to address questions of disparities in treatment because people feel like you're accusing them of intentional discrimination. Um, I think it's about having sophisticated tools and not being afraid to look carefully at the data to see if there are some potential red flags. I think on this podcast, I've said before that in New Jersey, we have the fourth highest number of immigrant students in the U.S. This means that districts are registering a high number of students that come from other countries. And that was an issue that you had mentioned earlier. What laws regarding residency and citizenship status do districts need to keep in mind when they're enrolling new students? Well, I think we have to start with the constitutional protections that are available before we even think about statutes and regulations. So, you know, Lau v. Nichols was a landmark case that laid out the concept that all students are entitled to an equitable education, um, and that includes English language learners. And Plyler v. Doe was a major U.S. Supreme Court case that built on that and said that nothing that we're doing should indicate to parents and kids that they have to prove their citizenship status to us um, before kids are allowed to enroll in our schools. So that should uh, be where we start. We don't want to do anything that accidentally has parents fearful that we're trying to uh, prove citizenship. Um, So for example, some school districts will ask for uh, a driver's license or other government-issued ID at the time that a student is enrolling. Uh, That is um, usually unintentional, but it is seen uh, by our courts as a way of asking someone to prove their citizenship status. And we have had a large number of districts nationally and a significant number of districts in New Jersey who were inappropriately asking for government-issued ID at the time of registration. So can districts use that as an option but not require it, or can they not ask for that at all? Yeah, great question. You can certainly accept the information if a parent um, offers it and provides it to you. Um, What we can't do is require government-issued ID. So what you're supposed to do at the time of enrollment is look at the totality of the information that's given to you. Um, You might have a situation where you have an affidavit that somebody is able to provide that says, yes, this person is residing in my home. Um, Yes, this person is paying rent to me. You might have utility bills that somebody can point to. There is a wide range of permissible proofs. And what our court cases have shown us is that if we force people to show one or two or three specific items, that's violating our statutory requirements. So there's good guidance on this in New Jersey Administrative Code in um, 6A22. You can see the specific provisions dealing with enrollment and uh, attendance. What are some key questions that districts should ask when they're enrolling students who are transferring from high school in another country or maybe a lower grade into a high school in the United States? 
Yeah, it's a it's a, a very important question. We have um, many students who are coming into the United States, and they were enrolled in high school um, in, in their native country. Um, in some cases, they graduated from high school in their native country, and this child may still be entitled to an education here in New Jersey. So you are entitled to an education in New Jersey up to and through the age of 20 if you haven't yet graduated uh, from a, a New Jersey or United States high school program. Um, if a student graduated in their native country, we have to do an analysis of the education the student received in their native country to determine if it's comparable to what they would have received in New Jersey. And we have a case in New Jersey, not very well known, but from 2009, uh, where a parent uh, came from Venezuela, and in the particular high school the student was in, the parents felt that the education in that particular high school wasn't at the level the student would be receiving if they graduated from a New Jersey high school. And the commissioner in that case laid out a number of factors you have to look at to determine whether somebody is still entitled to a high school education here. So they talked about the issue of the depth and breadth of the curriculum. You really want to look at the curriculum the student received in their native country. Would the program the student had allow that student to um, successfully apply for college in uh, New Jersey or nationally? Would the program be something that was attractive for employment for a student? And whatever education the student received in their native country, did it equip that student to fully participate in our civic and cultural life? Um, so those are some really important factors. It was a 2009 case. Not many people are aware of it, um, but it stresses that many kids um, would still be entitled to an education in New Jersey, even if they had graduated um, from a high school in their native country. So you can assign credits for anything that fulfills credit requirements in the United States, but you really have to look at that totality of their education to decide whether or not that diploma is equivalent to a New Jersey diploma. That's exactly right. And you know, and just to build on that, for kids uh, where, let's say they haven't yet graduated in their native country and they're coming here and you're trying to figure out where the student should begin um, in New Jersey, um, sometimes we have incomplete transcripts. Sometimes we have families who are leaving very difficult situations in their native countries and the records aren't as complete as we would like them to be. In those cases, the school district has to do the best that they can to assess that student's current levels of academic proficiency. Um, so you do district um, assessments to figure out where to appropriately place the student and what credit you can give that student based on the limited information that you might have available to you. We wish that we always had perfect information. Unfortunately, we don't always have that with kids coming from different situations. In a 1974 court ruling called Lau v. Nichols, which you mentioned earlier, yep. it was found that, and I quote, there is no equality of treatment merely by providing ELL students with the same facilities, textbooks, teachers, and curriculum. For students who do not understand English are effectively foreclosed from any meaningful education. And that the, the implication is you can't give the same exact education to someone who's been speaking English their whole life as to someone who's in the process of learning English. Yeah. What specific areas that haven't yet been mentioned would you encourage districts to explore to see whether or not they're providing students with equality of treatment in this area? So it's a really important concept that um, equality and equity um, are not 
necessarily the same thing. If you provided exactly the same program for every child, would that be equitable? And we know that in many cases it would not be. So you have a student coming from another country dealing with the challenge of English language proficiency, and there's all sorts of, of additional um, challenges that come with that. So I would suggest that school districts look at a few areas. Look at the level of parent participation. Uh, we know, the research tells us that the more um, involved parents are in their child's education, the better off that child is. But there are additional burdens to parent participation with English language learners. Um, so we need to look to overcome those obstacles. And that's something that we can easily measure, right? Our um, English language learner uh, parents coming to PTA meetings? Are they coming to back-to-school nights? Are they engaged the way that other parents are? We want to look at extracurricular participation. Um, are our students coming from other countries as fully engaged in the extracurricular program? Uh, we certainly want to look at the curriculum itself. Are we doing enough to celebrate diversity in our curriculum? Um, we do sometimes have cases where students coming from other countries may be the victims of harassment, intimidation, or bullying, and we want to make sure that we are promoting the kind of, of rich climate and culture that we celebrate the diversity that kids bring and it doesn't become a, a problem or a concern. Lau v. Nichols is not just about um, allowing kids into school, it's about making sure that all kids can succeed and they get the same, uh, they get the level of resources they need to be successful. And, you know, that's, that's not easy to do. It takes some effort. Um, it takes some professional development. English language learners are not simply the responsibility of the ESL or bilingual teacher. It's the responsibility of the entire school community, and we all have to um, embrace these kids just like we do all kids in the school community. David, I've really appreciated talking about these issues with you. Your expertise is very deep, and I think that there's a lot of folks who have learned something from what you've talked about today. I, I know I have, so thank you so much for joining me. It's been great talking with you. Thank you, Ken. It's been a, a real pleasure, and it's always wonderful to work closely with the department on, on such an important issue. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you would like more information about ESL and bilingual education in New Jersey, please visit our website at www.nj.gov forward slash education forward slash bilingual. If you like this episode, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Also, please leave a review. It helps new listeners find us. Finally, this presentation is intended as a summary of law only and is not meant as legal advice. Please consult your attorney to obtain legal advice.